This is 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, a retrospective podcast. Brought to you by UtilityMuffinLabs.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. My name is Nathan, and this week we're doing something a little bit different. We're doing an interview. I know everybody was under the impression we were going to be doing a review, but it turns out I have some interesting things happening in my life right now, and unfortunately, time just didn't permit Bob and I to get together to chat about the next book. So this week, we've done an interview with one of the authors that worked on Rite of Princes. His name is Jacob Klunder. He is also a fairly prolific contributor to Storyteller's Vault. We're going to ask him some questions about his participation on earlier White Wolf material. He's done a bunch of books, which we'll get into, and what he's doing now with Storyteller's Vault. So let's just get right into the interview. Welcome to the podcast, Jacob. How are you today? Uh, I'm fine. How are you guys? Doing awesome. I'm doing pretty well, too. So I kind of wanted to give a little bit of background here as far as like how this conversation kind of came about, um, if that's cool with you. Yeah, sure. Uh, Go ahead. So we had kind of like a giveaway. We managed to get our hands on a bunch of the new Chicago by Night books for V5. And so we had a contest. And I honestly don't remember what the details of it were. Long story short, you had won one of the books. But unfortunately, you live somewhere so far away from us, it's not even economically feasible for us to send you the book. <laughs> and yeah, I, I was I was I was gobsmacked. I was dumbfounded. I was like, it would be it would be less expensive for us to go on to like Modifius's website and order the book and pay for it and have it shipped to you from Modifius than it would for us to take the book we have and ship it ourselves. So we were like, hey, let's figure out a way to get something a little bit less ridiculous uh, taken care of. And yeah. um, I don't I don't remember who kind of came up with the idea, but um, we we're like, wait, what about a conversation on the podcast? That'd be really cool, especially because you are a you were a contributor to one of the books that we recently reviewed. Yeah, uh, I was uh, I was one of the writers on Rite of Princes. That was actually my uh my first official writing credit. We kind of want to touch on that, but also I did some investigating too. Um, and we had been passing up your name in book after book because that's not the only book that you contributed to. At all. Like there's, <laughs> there's quite a few. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I got my name in a, in a couple of books, uh, both as a writer and, and doing just sort of uh, minor contributing and, and stuff like that. I think I got a couple of honorable mentions somewhere. So back in the day contributing to a white wolf book can can you give us like some insight you know as far as like your memories of what that process was like at the time uh yeah um that was back when matthew mcfarland was uh he'd just taken over when they were changing over from vampire the dark ages to dark ages vampire what's now called uh second edition dark ages and uh, Matthew had hired a, a whole bunch of, of uh, new and relatively unproven people, and I was one of them. And um, Rite of Princess was my first book. I was sent um, an outline for what the book was uh, about, what my chapter and uh, stuff was supposed to be about. And I wrote, I sent it back. He did what's called red lines, where you know he had his editorial comments. I did a rewrite and sent that back, and... That was uh, that was how it was it was done. Um, 
it was it was pretty simple, straight uh, for backwards and forwards with uh, with email. Um, that was that was back before the year 2000. So there uh, there weren't really any any sort of fancy group chats over various things like uh, like Discord and stuff like that. I was curious as to how that communication. Did did you feel that what you put in was pretty much as it was, or was there some some pushback for? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, I got I got a ton of really really good feedback. Um, generally, all the editors that I've worked for, I've been really happy with with what they've given me, um, and it's it's been it's always been been sort of email based, and and if there were any questions, you could always you could always write them and say, hey, um, what exactly do you mean by this, or how do you want me to change that? And I've always taken a sort of um, a craftsman's view of writing rather than an artist's view of writing. It's like um, they hire me to write something, so if they tell me to do it differently, then you know they're the ones who are paying me. I'll do it differently. Uh, I might argue for why I'm doing the things that I am, but in the end, I'm going to do what they ask me to. Right, so you're, you're not precious about you know kind of what you're contributing no, I mean, in the end, you know, it's 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 still a creative process, but but if most of the time, I feel like the the input that they have, it in the end, it it makes it makes for a better product. Um, and if I disagree with them, uh, they again, they're the ones they're the ones who are paying for it, and it's it's their product. So I I, I do what I'm told. Uh, which is also why I kind of like writing for for the Storytellers Vault because I got I got a lot more freedom. I'm I'm doing my own editing, which sometimes also not doesn't turn out all that well. But <laughs> you know you know how it is. Yeah, well, and we'll get to a little bit about the Storytellers Vault too because I also was mistaken about how um, prolific you were on the vault. But for now, we'll stick with kind of the your contribution to White Wolf stuff before all these kind of changes went through. You had mentioned that you're at the time you were kind of like an unproven writer. And, you know, this is something that I like to ask of everybody that we've encountered that has worked in a professional capacity on the world of darkness and any other games that we, we encounter. Were you a fan of the material before you got into writing for it? And if you were, what was that transition like going from, player or fan to professional contributor? Well, I was a fan. Uh, I was a huge fan, um, especially when it comes to Dark Ages. Dark Ages is my my one true love of, uh, of gaming, um, and it has been uh, pretty much ever since it came out. Uh, and as far as transitioning, for me, it's uh, mainly been basically taking the stuff that I already did as a player, as a storyteller, and then writing it down, putting it into what one might call sort of an official form. Uh, I didn't really feel that much of a change, except maybe I had to explain things a bit more because you know when you're when you're setting up your own games, you can do things in shorthand. You can write down three words, and that's an hour of game. Whereas here, you you have to <laughs> explain things a little bit more. Um, and then I had to stick a bit more to sort of the the straight canon if you will um everyone changes uh a game setting a bit and you have to remember when you're writing you you have to stick within um the common frame of reference you can't go outside of that as much as you can in your own game so when you mentioned uh like dark ages being your your love and uh, i'm profoundly curious is uh the challenge of communication and coming from the fact that you're writing for an audience but what goes through your head 
when you're writing for such a diverse audience? Do you just focus on how you would understand it, and uh, or do you feel that she would actually try to communicate these uh, the terminology of the Dark Ages? Not in other words, if I'm a knight in the Dark Ages and I'm a typical vampire player, I, I might think I just run around in armor and slash stuff with a sword, but that, that's nowhere near just the only limit of it. And the books that we were looking at that we've seen so far and reviewed, that's definitely hammered home, but it looks like there's a staggered difficulty in writing, like a different voice almost. Uh, would you agree that that's a challenge? It is. It is a challenge. One of the things that I learned very, very quickly was um, you have to explain things um, in a way that um, everyone or almost everyone can follow. You can't just rely on thinking that people know what you know. Uh, a good example was in um, in Ride of Princes, I wrote something about uh, flying hunting birds. And in the Middle Ages, there was a tiered system of what kind of birds certain people were allowed to fly. Like if you were a peasant, you're only supposed to fly owls, I think, all the way up to if you were a high noble, you could fly certain birds. And I just mentioned at some point that uh, vampires should uh, not fly birds above their status. And then the editor went, well, what does that mean? And I just, you know, for me, it was natural because I knew that. But then I realized, ah, well, obviously, not a lot of people know that. So I'm going to have to go back and actually explain that so that this comment makes sense. The chapter that you contributed to in Rite of Princes um, deals a lot with things like you're talking about, like, um, you know, hunting birds and and just weapons in general. And I've noticed, obviously, looking into some of the stuff that you've contributed to Storyteller's Vault and obviously your interest <laughs> of Dark Ages and just looking at like your Instagram. <laughs> Weaponry seems to be something that uh, is very important to you, something that appeals to you. Was there an interest previous to that that brought them to you to consult on that? Or was that just like a happy coincidence or, you know, how, how did that kind of break down? That that was a happy coincidence, pretty much. That was the the chapter that I was assigned, uh, and I come from like when I got started in role playing, it was Dungeons and Dragons, it was the old Red Box, um, and it was a lot of hack and slash. And obviously, I thought weapons were cool, and then it gradually evolved, um, and it keeps evolving, and um, and it's something that that I personally find really really interesting. Um, but back then, it was just basically. I think I'd made a few comments uh, regarding weapons on the um, on the old White Wolf forums, just you know, talking about what weapons you'd have in in that Middle Ages timeline. Uh, and I remember when they were doing um, the companion book. Uh, what's it called? Spoils of War. Um, Matthew just asked me, okay, well, we're going to be doing some new weapon stuff. Um, here's what's been written. Do you have any comments? And fortunately, that was written by a guy who was as passionate about weapons as, as I am. I can't remember his name off the top of my head. Um, so I just said, you know, that, that looks really good. Uh, but yeah, um, I, I really, historical weapons is one of the things that, that I'm really, really interested in. So on the line of, uh, historical weapons... If you could pick a top weapon that personifies what uh, what vampire is as a theme, what would it be? Uh, the rapier. Um, the rapier, well, either the rapier or the longsword. And the both of the, the ideas, really the sword, 
because the sword is a misunderstood weapon. The sword for most of human history has actually not been a primary battlefield weapon. It has been a weapon that has been used in a more civilian context. Mm. Vampires should rarely find themselves on the battlefield, and thus the weapon, uh, the sword, is, is, is the right weapon for them. It is a weapon for when you're wearing very little armor and you suddenly find yourself in a fight in a city or in a castle or something like that. Um, so for me, and it's also, you know, it is the weapon of princes. It's the weapon of nobility. It is the weapon of, of knights. And, and it is the, the weapon of those who try to portray themselves as superior to others. Um, and then I could spend half an hour discussing the, uh, symbolism of the long sword or the rapier, but I'm not going to get into that because we don't have that kind of time. <laughs> In that book, you, um, one of the things that you contributed was a domain, a vampiric domain, if I'm correct, right? Yeah. In the follow-up to that, Spoils of War, which we haven't reviewed yet, that's actually next up on our, our list of, uh, of, of reviews, that domain ends up getting destroyed. Is that correct? That is correct, yeah. That was always the idea. Um, the idea for Ride of Princess and Spoils of War was uh, to have a mirror um, and the, the cover of the two books go together. They, uh, that was always uh, a huge, uh, one picture that was broken up. Um, so it was always the idea that in Rite of Princes, we would uh, depict domains and uh, show how they were defended and, and how the people within the domain were, um, were managing them. And then in Spoils of War, the people writing that, their job was to destroy that domain to show uh, the offensive rather than the defensive side of things that's awesome because that's that's actually where i was going to go with that question <laughs> uh, i was curious if you knew from the start you know is this going to be something that's destroyed or kind of was it sprung on you by surprise uh i think we were told but it came as a surprise to me because i completely missed that in the read-through of uh, <laughs> of the <laughs> of the material so i was like oh right yeah uh there were some mention about about that, um, but it was really cool to see what someone else did with my stuff. Because as a writer, you always want to see what do people do with the stuff you've written. I don't know why I never thought about that. <laughs> I'm solely used to the when when someone writes, it's like even even when it's a novel, I just assume that it's always like that's yeah, what I did. It's my work. It's good. Let me know if you like it or not. Not necessarily what they apply it to. I always want after action reports. Tell me what you've done with my stuff. Um, because that is the ultimate litmus test of did it work or did it not work? I mean, you guys, I I listened to uh, to your review of or, or your look at Ride of Princess. And it's fair to say that you uh, perhaps didn't give it as positive a review as you did some of the other books. And all the time I was listening to it, I was going, yeah. I can totally see your point of view on that. And I am 100% cool with it because it never felt unfair. And I never thought they're not just not getting it. I'm constantly thinking, okay, they're looking at it from a different perspective than what I'm looking uh, from. And so that's cool. All kind of, um, shall we say, relevant or fair critique just makes you a better, uh, a better writer. That's one thing that I think both of us... Um you know, when we first started, very much when we would review books, look through them, the authors were never really 
kind of relevant to the material. You know, we weren't, we never got the impression like, hey, we're, we're, we're reviewing the authors. You know, we were just sort of talking about it within the context because the truth is we love the world. And either way, you know, we are going to be consumers of this material. And it was only after I think we started to get into talking to people like Matthew Dawkins and talking to um, some of the contributors to Storyteller's Vault where we started to, you know, um, think more about the author. But I think we always tried to approach it less in an antagonistic way. You know, we don't want to demean people who pour their heart and soul into this material. You know, we're just trying to give our our perspective on how that material fits into the world that we both love. And there's there's a lot of empathy there, too, because it's a challenge to write for everybody. Oh, yeah. That's that's clear. So when we review, it's like we're in our head, though, we still have the community, you know, that's talked to us about previous books and what they're looking for. And it tends to color our perception when we look at it, too, to try to be neutral, right? Immediately just look at it base. And I know for a fact, Writer Princes, where we came from, was like, okay, this is a vampire book. And by the title, we were missed, you know, we were like, oh, we feel misled. But you talk about it being mirrored with spoils of war. It's, hmm. Now it makes us, now it makes me think like wow if I if I knew which of these books were considered together that that obviously might might change everything because in our review of Spoils of War we're probably going to find exactly what you're talking about um, because Rite of Princes I suspected and I mentioned on there that they give you the vampires take on what these werewolves might be doing on this land and it and it makes it to where you don't have to be a werewolf expert because it gives you just enough to have an idea of what yeah. they're doing with it. At the same time, if you are a werewolf, quote-unquote, expert, sure, you're going to see some inconsistencies. But remember, it's a vampire book. Well, and it, really, it's a world of darkness, but the, it seemed heavily skewed uh, for, for a vampire perspective. Am I wrong in that? The idea with um, the uh, Dark Ages XXX line, Dark Ages vampire, Dark Ages werewolf, and so on, was uh, that you would have all of these different lines together and then you would have some books that were focused on just one line and you would have some books that were useful for uh, all the lines and you run a risk when you do that because on the one hand like if you're only into vampire then if you get a book where there's constant references to and this is how werewolves do it this is how inquisitors do it there's a lot of material you can't use on the other hand if you got people who've got all of the stuff, they're going to be more likely to buy a book that has info for all of it. The setup was basically, all right, let's take a look at domains, what you can do with them, how you can defend them, and then take each of the the splats, uh, if you want to use the the, <laughs> the terminology, and, and how do they then interact with this? And, um, you know, that's a tricky, tricky tightrope to walk because... If people only, like I said, if people are only interested in one thing, if you give too much of other things, then you're going to lose them and they're going to feel ripped off for, for, for buying the book. But it's true that uh, in the Dark Ages line, it's always been the vampire that's been the focus. That was the core book that you had to have uh, in order to use the other books. Uh, so there was always a focus on vampire. Uh, I don't know how it would have ended up if the line had continued. Um, I guess we'll never know. Yeah, I was going to ask you, when you do some investigating into the Dark Ages material after the, I guess you could say, the the post-apocalypse of the main modern-day lines, there were still a bunch of Dark Ages books that were kind of on the docket to be released. Oh, yeah. 
Those never got released. Yeah, one of them got released, and I cannot... F uh, what was it called? There was one that got released, which was... It was something regarding an, um, an eclipse or something. I can't remember the name yeah, of yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. I know, I know what you're talking about. Editors note that book is actually called Dark Ages, Darkening Sky. I'd have to look. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I, I know what you're talking about. We were working on a book, um, uh, Brugia Chronicles. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have, still have, fully completed first draft of my chapter of Brugia Chronicles. Um, the rest of the writers were close to being finished with their first draft when it got, uh, when it got canceled. Uh, and it was supposed to be, if I recall correctly, a four-part chronicle, obviously focusing on Clan Bruja, uh, set in the Dark Ages. Well, because you'd contributed to the Venture Chronicles as well, right? I did. Yeah, that was uh, that was that was an interesting situation. We were three people working on it. We were um, a guy from Denmark, me, who'd never been to America and <laughs> uh, who was mainly writing for Dark Ages. We had a guy from Britain, and we had a guy from America. And they had the guy from America write the Dark Ages British chapter. They had the guy from Britain write the Victorian Age American chapter. And they had the guy from Denmark, who'd never been to America at that point, write the chapter on America. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I guess it worked out. <laughs> but it was just, it was, it was interesting. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wrote that, like, a year before my first trip to America. Seems to make all kinds of sense in that one. Right. <laughs> yeah. It's uh, but it it came out okay. I uh, I'm going to review it naturally, uh, but the Venture Chronicles was a uh, was a good story from my memory. I'm happy to hear it. I have to say that because uh, often what we review I've already read, but how many years ago? <laughs> right. Oh since, yeah. So oh yeah. It's it's one of those. Yeah. And sometimes you do keep those old titles, uh, you know, in your heart, and you remember them incorrectly. And sometimes you go back and you're like, oh no, <laughs> this wasn't, this isn't nearly as good as I recall. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm having that experience right now. <laughs> well, we apologize if we've contributed to that in any way. No, nah, it's, it's, it's just, my wife is, uh, is rerunning Transylvania Chronicles. Um, I was, I was a player when she ran it the first time and now she's running it for some new people and I'm a player again. And uh, it was a really, really fun run the first time, but there was definitely some uh, some rose tinted nostalgia glasses um, uh, about about that particular chronicle. I'm I'm actually jealous. I've uh, a secret uh, quest of mine is on my bucket list is to have a have a female running game for me for vampires specifically. I've heard about them. Uh, clearly, they exist. You've confirmed it, and uh, I just want to <laughs> I just want to find one. I, I had the only one I had ran wasn't vampire. They ran a zombie game and they ate me. You you guys keep talking about LARPing. I mean, uh, I hooked up with my wife at a vampire LARP. If if there's one place where you can find the the elusive female vampire player, it ought to be at a LARP, man. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's not it's not that. It's finding the person who wants to storytell. Oh, that's okay, the, yeah. That's the challenge. Is it more common for guys to be the game master, the storyteller, uh, in your experience? Because when I look over here, um, in my experience, I'd say that while it's not 50-50, it's getting to be close to 50-50. So I'm just wondering if, if you think it's it's more difficult to find a, a, a woman who's willing to, to run a game. Yes, I definitely do. And I know where I know where it stems from. A lot of it is uh, community. They're, uh, here in the States, anyway, it's always been sort of guy-centric um, for gaming. I think that's almost virtually universal, except yeah. over in Europe, I've learned... 
that there's been a lot more women and just, yeah, absolutely, we'll, we'll talk about it, play it, and run it. And I was like, I need to go there, apparently, uh, to <laughs> chase that. But I know why it is. <laughs> Over here, it's ultra-competitive. Like, it's real, real competitive. Like, there's a lot of players who study and memorize all the rules and then use them repeatedly. And I find that women are more selective with players they want to run a game for. Right? They're not going to go through the stress to run it for everybody. But uh, they, want, they want a fun group. And so they'll find people that gel together first versus having have game will travel. Uh, yeah. I think it's smarter that way. <laughs> it's like you want to have a fun group that wants to have a good time, and that's ultimate for any storyteller. I know this might be a little odd and slightly irregular for some folks, but I felt like now would be a really great time to actually consult with a female. So let's do that. I have story told or game mastered, GM'd whatever, um, here and there, not as much as I want to. I definitely want to do it more, but the main reason why I haven't is just because of a time factor. Um, But I think that there's nothing unique about that and me being a woman. I think that that's true of a lot of people. I think a lot of people want to be storytellers and game masters, and a lot of people just either they don't want to make it a priority or they can't make it a priority to dedicate the time to um, being able to build a game and and run a game on a regular basis for people. I don't think it has anything to do with your gender or sex or, you know, whichever term. Um, uh, I think it's more just that the the reason why there are more male storytellers is because there are more male gamers. And I think that, this is just speaking from my personal experience, when I was younger, uh, like middle school, high school age, I definitely wanted to play role-playing games more, but I didn't have a community to do that. Um, and I think that it could be that some women feel that, like, growing up, at least when we were growing up in the 80s and 90s, it was more perceived to be more of a male activity. Maybe women weren't as encouraged to get involved as they were, but I feel like now it's a much more popular thing. A lot of, like, dads and older brothers are bringing their siblings and wives into the fold and getting people interested in this type of stuff so hopefully and i you know i've no like almost no more female gamers than i know male gamers and so i feel like going forward you're gonna see a lot more um you know people of all genders and gender identities being storytellers i think it's just an artifact of you know that there are more male gamers i don't think that there's anything um that you can attribute to being like of the female mindset that makes us not want to be storytellers i want to be a storyteller it's just that I'm an adult in my mid thirties with many, many responsibilities. And I wish I could, I had more time. That being said, I think it mostly is just like, it's not my top priority. And like our storyteller, uh, for the LARP that we go to, one of them, one of the lead storytellers is a woman and she's incredibly successful in her personal life. She's an amazing storyteller and very dedicated in her professional life. Still like this is her passion and her love and she makes the time for it. I honestly think that uh, the LARPing community um, was very different in my experience from like the overall general gaming community, Um, at least where I grew up and in my experiences, gaming, tabletop gaming was reserved to people that were kind of like ostracized, uh, you know, the nerds. Oh, yeah. Uh, When I was growing up, that was kind of the the crowd was the, the geek crowd. Yeah, same here. I'd fit into that community, but I kind of straddled a lot of lines in that regard. But when I went to the LARP community, it seemed like the more socially capable people were definitely crossing over into that. 
And so I think at that time, the mentality started to change. It's, it's a long road. You know, it's still, I think today, there's a lot of stigma to especially tabletop gaming. And, and even I find now, personally, when I tell people I LARP, that's like a whole other level of like, oh, wait, what? You LARP? And I don't know if that's consistent across the board in other countries. Uh, not in Denmark. Can't be, huh? If I say I LARP, I will then have to explain to people that um, my LARP is not the same as the LARP they see on the LARP TV show that we have in Denmark. <laughs> also, I've heard that in Denmark, you can't LARP unless you have the costume. Uh, dep- I, I mean, if you're doing it, if you're just doing it with the kids, like um, I work as a childcare professional. Um, if I if I do a LARP with the kids, it's basically bring your buffer weapons, and if you have a costume, then bring it because it's it's basically about running around the forest and having the kids hit each other, uh, and <laughs> me getting a chance to hit them without their parents complaining. But yeah, um, <laughs> most most LARPs in uh, here in in uh, in Europe have become rather large productions uh for better and for worse but it sounds like uh you guys need to come over and uh and play with us and uh and and if i mean if you're ever in denmark i'll try and induce my wife to run something for you sweet for sure if we ever if we ever go to europe i mean that's kind of like top of the list like it's part of the reason i like i ever wanted to go was to actually you know interact with the larp community there the convention of thorns has been started up again it got canceled because of the coronavirus but uh, if there's ever a vampire LARP, you, you should try out. I mean, Convention of Thorns, that is an amazing experience. Talk to me about your contribution to Lankea Sanctum book. Oh, shit. Uh, all right. Um, <laughs> that one was interesting. That was when um, when they killed off the, uh, the old or original or classic, or whatever you want to call it, World of Darkness. And I'd just broken into writing for... Uh, modern day vampire and so I got contacted and they basically said so you want to write on some of the new stuff and I said sure uh, and I'm going to be honest uh, that's, that is that is not some of my best work because I was not feeling the setting uh, the only time I've really felt the new setting and it probably doesn't come as any surprise that it's in a historical setting but the um, uh, Fall of the Camarilla, uh, Requi- Rome Requiem setting. I loved that, but otherwise, I never really got into it. Uh, but the Lancea Sanctum, I was. I worked on two books. I worked on Cateris and Lancea Sanctum, and as I was working on those books, things were still in flux. Uh, they were changing out names for clans. They were changing out disciplines and stuff. Um, and I tried my best, but. It was a bit frustrating, and I think that was why I didn't get any work afterwards, because it was quite clear that my heart just wasn't in writing for it. It was it was more of a job, uh, um, sort of a, a I get paid, I do this, rather than I do this thing that I really love, and I also get paid for it, if if that makes any sense. It does, it does. Like, Lincoln Sanctum is one of my favorite books of the Requiem line. I think uh, it was a unique idea, concept. Uh, it's it's inclusion felt vampiric, and uh, it, it really did. It reminded me that the uh, Sabbat in a different take, right? If maybe the Sabbat found a soul, and that's <laughs> but still was itself, right? And that's what, what I want to tell you is that as hard as it seemed, and like you, I understand not uh, not your heart not being in it. Um, you did a good job. That book is one of the ones I still pull off the shelf. I've all, and that's another one on my bucket list. I want to play. 
in a rec room game that goes longer than a night. <laughs> right? In Chicago Requiem, the the whole idea of Linkia Sanctum, the wars they have, that politics uh, just resonates with me. And I and I and it comes from ironically the book you don't like <laughs> or you felt yeah. shaky about. Uh, did you ever read the uh, tie-in novel for Requiem uh, Chicago? Oh, yeah. I'm in that. Me and my wife are in that book. Or is in you contributed, or is in the characters? No, uh, we have a cameo. Uh, um, one of the writers, uh, Janet, uh, she actually visited my wife and I here in Denmark for a convention, played in a LARP that I did, and so we got included uh, as uh, cameo characters in the vampire a part of that book, uh, which was kind of fun. So uh, yeah, uh, I can't I can't remember anything about it except. Um, I think I showed her pictures of us dressed up for um, for goth clubbing, and she just said, "All right, I'm going to put you in the book." Like I think owners of a goth club or something. So just a little fun aside that that we're actually we have a cameo in that book. That is awesome because I, I love that novel too. Uh, that that series of inclusion. It's uh, that's the one thing I think sung for them. Like in the uh, classic world of darkness, the novels kind of came afterward, and they definitely felt commercial and forced. At, at, at oh point. yeah. However. When they launched the Requiem line, the novels were in the beginning. Like you had you had the books there, but then the novels seemed to be not far behind. And so it gave you an idea, like, here are the rules, but here's how we kind of envision these stories going. And when those those got pitched, I was like, Oh man, this game is awesome. Yeah, that uh that that was one of the things they had going for them. Um they had a much clearer vision of what they wanted to do with the requiem stuff whereas uh the uh the old vampire stuff you can sort of see how that has uh been done in jumps and suddenly something new comes in that doesn't quite fit whereas in in requiem it's it's one one step uh leads to another getting started in the the sort of classic world of darkness the old world of darkness, continuing to work with them um, into Requiem and then kind of like that stopping. You have since contributed to like the 20th anniversary edition stuff. I noticed that you have contribution to werewolf book, of course, getting back into the dark ages stuff. How has the process changed from that classic, you know, white wolf being a company moving into Onyx path and then beyond how, how has that process changed for you as a contributor? For me, it didn't change really that much because the two things that I worked on, um, I worked on Changing Ways for Werewolf and then I worked on a uh, um, a short story for, what's it called? Canine Conspiracies, the the Dark Ages short story collection. And for the Dark Ages short story collection, it was basically the same, you know, with even less of an outline. I had to do my own outline uh, and then I I sent in my draft. It got redlined and I, I redid it so that it fitted with the red lines um, with changing ways. Um, as far as I recall, we didn't do all that much, um, you know, talk as a group because the chapters, there wasn't that much that had to um, sort of the chapters have to, in, had to interact with each other. The mm-hmm. chapters were all very um, much their own separate thing. So once again, it was pretty much a case of, of, doing the draft, sending it in, 
getting the red lines. The red lines were a bit more advanced because editing uh, documents have become a bit more advanced, so it was easier for me to implement what the editor wanted. But other than that, that hadn't actually changed all that much uh, for me. But from what I understand from a lot of other books, there's a lot more group chats uh, talking about how the books are eventually going to end up, how the various chapters mesh and interact with each other. Do you find a great difficulty in tying a story about uh, writing for Vampire and then transitioning to writing about Werewolf? Uh, not really. Uh, vampire is my uh, is my great love, but I've always I've always loved Werewolf as well. Uh, my wife is a huge fan of Werewolf. That is, without a shadow of a doubt, her favorite game. Uh, so... In addition to my own love for it, I've I've sort of gotten her vicarious fangirlishness as well. So for me, it it wasn't really all that different, especially since I got to write about something that I'm really uh, passionate about, something that I find really interesting in the werewolf setting, which is the the I don't really know the correct uh, pronunciation, metis or metis. I I've I've always pronounced it metis because that's the that's how you pr- would pronounce it in Danish. But I think in English it would be more like metis. We say menace, but I think it's a. Uh, it might be just Midwestern. <laughs> I always take it. Oh, it looks like menace to me. Just to find out a little bit more about what you've created for Storytellers Vault, what is the most popular thing that you've done, or alternatively, what is the thing that you're most uh, proud of uh, and you wish was more popular? <laughs> All right. So the most popular one is Denmark by Night, which was the first thing that I uploaded. Uh, second most popular is Legend of the Clans, which uh, I don't think will come as any uh, big surprise because there's a lot of discipline powers, level six plus disciplines and magical items in that one. Uh, that one was written, I would say, about half because I wanted to write it and half because I wanted to write uh, something that I knew was going to sell well. Um, and Dark Medieval Armory uh, is is a big seller. Uh, once again, showing that uh, role players really like weapons. I uh, I don't know which one I I'd like to be more popular. I'm surprised at how popular my Dark Ages Mage book is. That thing sells extremely well. <laughs> well, there's not a lot of material for Dark Ages Mage. I, I don't think. Period. There's not a lot of material for it, which is surprising. Yeah, um, but it looks like, from what I can tell, mage products are more popular on the vault than werewolf products. And I've always thought that that werewolf was whoa that werewolf was more popular than mage. But uh, but apparently, like mage is super popular. I don't know if it's because they're starved for content or if mage is just a more popular game than than werewolf is. The problem with mage has always been digestible material. Oh yeah. I also think Dark Ages Mage is a lot more approachable than Modern Day Mage. Modern Day Mage is, uh, I almost feel like you need some kind of, of philosophy degree, degree to completely get Modern Day Mage, <laughs> and I don't have one. Uh, whereas Dark Ages Mage, uh, I think also because I come from uh, a game called Ash Magica, I played that a whole lot. So Dark Ages Mage just clicks a lot better for me. So you're cheating. Ars, Ars Magica was the origins of Mage. Come on, we know, we know. It definitely, definitely. <laughs> I mean, Major props to Ask Magica. That 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 game launched my love of of Middle Age history, med- medieval history. But it also brought my nemesis clan, the Tremere, into the fore. So that's uh, <laughs> <you know. laughs> uh, and the latest edition of of Ask Magica uh, also makes it clear that it should be be, be pronounced Tremere. <laughs> right, Tremere. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone pronounces this Tremere. 
and and then they very specifically says that it say that it's supposed to be pronounced Tremere. I'm still saying Tremere. Right, because because Tremere seems weird. It's just just <laughs> just because we've said it so long. Yeah, that's one of the that's one of the most fun parts about doing this podcast is learning how you pronounce things compared to people all over the world. And you're like, yeah, that might be right, but I'm not changing. Like it's been Giovanni for 20 years. It's not changing. I can't do it. Yeah, I mean, and and the litmus test is always how do you pronounce uh, the uh, founding clan of the Sabbath that is not the La Sombra. <laughs> <laughs> Zemis. It'll always be Zemis to me. <laughs> the first I ever heard them was uh, pronounced Shamase, which apparently no one pronounces it that way anywhere. Whoa. I've, I, no, that, that, that one's weird. <laughs> my, my pronunciation have always been Zemish. So the Shamase, I know, I know where that comes from. Let's just say there was a pretentious Illinois suburb where I first, <laughs> where I first heard that to just to be different. Like, this is back when they printed in the book. These are the two ways to say it. And they were like, it's, it's Shamase. And I was like, where do you get that? It's like, what's well, special? We know this. Okay. All right. Okay. Is there anything you have coming up through Storyteller's Vault or World of Darkness period? Uh, yeah, I am. Uh, I'm almost done with um, a chronicle for Dark Ages called Fall of Akha, which chronicles the uh, the fall of the last bastion of the crusader states from uh, 1242 to 1291 it's a four-part chronicle it was supposed to be out a lot earlier but since it's a chronicle i'm playtesting it and suddenly we could meet um so <laughs> so we, we we have to finish playtesting that one and everything's written for it so that should be out soon then i'm working on uh denmark chronicles which is a companion piece to uh to Denmark by night, which is going to be a chronicle set in uh, in Denmark. We'll see if anyone who's not Danish is actually going to buy that one. Uh, and after that, my plan is just to keep on making Dark Ages stuff. I have a ton of ideas for settings and stories and stuff like that. So uh, I'm I'm set for the foreseeable future for just writing Dark Ages stuff. Thank you for being on our podcast and chatting with us and giving us some insider perspective in the future. We'd love to have you back. Of course, and keep and keep writing. Yeah, thanks. And I'll be more than happy to be back. I mean, I, I, I really love your podcast. It's I, I generally don't listen to podcasts, but uh, I listen to yours, and uh, it was my constant companion uh, working out every Saturday, but uh, then that got canceled as well. <laughs> yeah, we, we, we're feeling you on that one. It's uh, It's been a rough couple of months. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I just foresee, like, in a couple of years... 2020 is going to be like a, a major topic of game books. Like everybody's going to be writing a game book about how how did so and so survive 2020. I'm I'm banking it's torpor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but basically, all right. I'm just going to stake myself. Wake wake me when this stuff's over. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time uh, in my life where I ever went just like, hey, wake me up next year. But I actually kind of meant it. Right. <laughs> Thank you for listening to 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. If you like our podcast and you'd like to help support our show, consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade. We offer reward tiers of additional Patreon-only podcasts, t-shirts, and personalized gaming experiences. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, and go to our website, utilitymuffinlabs.com, for links to all of our social media, additional podcasts, and more. If you'd like to chat with us, submit a title for review, promote your gaming-related 
related stuff or anything else you can think of, email me at Nathan at UtilityMuffinLabs.com. Utility Muffin Labs, consistently rated adequate. 